Some things shouldn't be transparent, like stop signs. But what you pay for should always be clear, like Hiller's true transparency pricing, always clearly itemized and never any hidden fees. Because you have the right to know what you're paying for. For more information, visit happyhiller.com slash true transparency pricing. Happy you'll be of the services free. Call the Happy Face Truck today. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. Ryan Mudd is my producer. He's behind the glass spinning the dials for me tonight. You can call him to get to me at 615-737-1045. That's 737-1045. I'm a man that is blessed beyond measure, all reasonable and otherwise. I hope you recognize just how blessed you are. If that's a conversation you want to have, have it with me or have it with somebody. My DMs are wide open on Twitter at jmartzone to have that discussion with you. So... Here's something maybe you knew, maybe you didn't know. It's National Running Day. And usually I don't get behind all these national days because there's a national something day every year, but I can actually make a point based on this one, so I'm going to do it. It's also, I think, National Donut Day on Friday. That's something that can be an excuse, I guess, to get sweet with it. I probably will not. But I celebrated National Running Day today by doing two miles, which is pretty much what I do every weekday unless I do three or four or five miles. This is not me bragging. As anybody will tell you, as many times as people try to congratulate me about any of this stuff, all glory goes to Christ because he gave me the mentality to do it. He let everything that I tried over the past couple of years work, and he has helped to develop within me healthy habits that would make no sense to the old version of me. Nothing whatsoever can I take credit for in any capacity. And this doesn't just go for health. It goes for all the wonderful things that have come about in my life, my health, my job, uh, my relationship with my wonderful parents, and most of all, my relationship with the love of my life and what she means to me, exhibiting God's love for me every time I even so much as think about her. But I actually want to talk about Draymond Green and a solid article from Ramona Shelburne at ESPN.com called How Draymond Green Found His Zen. First off, when you think of Draymond Green, you don't often think of Zen because he's known more for, well, technical fouls and yelling and screaming and histrionics and things of that nature than he is, or he's known at least as much for that stuff as he is for what he does on the court. But Draymond Green, and I have mentioned this a couple of times, but there's a lot more context to it now. He dropped 25 pounds after a mid-season intervention from Bob Myers, the general manager of the Golden State Warriors, and other executives. And so he said, yeah, I know I'm fat. He acknowledged he was overweight. He acknowledged that it was having an impact on his play, and he pledged to do something about it. And he said, look, I'm going to get this under control ASAP. And then he did exactly as he promised. And how did he do it? He cut out red wine. He cut out fast food. He cut out sweets. He added a ton of cardio in the gym, and the weight just fell right off. And if you're watching him, he's moving better right now than I've ever seen him move in the NBA. And he is a definite finals MVP candidate in his own right after playing the best basketball of his career these past couple of series and early in this one. So Shelburne writes in this piece about how Green's fire, this on-edge, chip-on-shoulder style that he has played with his entire NBA career and even back to Michigan State days, that it's both a blessing and a curse, and that's kind of how he describes it. Here's a quote. This is from Draymond Green. It's all about, is the fire working for me or is it working against me? 
when I'm channeling it to work for me, I think I'm one of the baddest expletives on the planet. When it gets the best of me, I'm not so good. Folks, the last technical foul that Draymond Green got was on April the 30th against Houston in Game 2, and that was later rescinded by the NBA. But back to the diet. So his birthday was March the 4th. And he tells Bob Myers, look, I want to enjoy my birthday. Then after that, I'm going to get really serious about this and really start to get myself in better shape. And I will tell you that confidence does go a long way in life, as long as it's built on the right things anyway. And generally, it's great when it stops short of arrogance. There is a line between confidence and arrogance. When you cross that line, you're doing yourself damage and you're probably damaging those around you. I am pretty confident at this point I can do this job and I can do it well. That I can get behind this microphone and I can inform and I can entertain you. I can make you think. I can hopefully from time to time bring on someone else that can make me smarter as well as you. But hopefully I don't come across arrogant about it. And if I don't, it's because I know this is a blessing. Like I said off the top, it's a gift. It's not just some innate talent I can take credit for which actually makes it so much more worthwhile that someone gifted, that someone better than me, bigger than me, so far superior to me in every way, love me enough to give me this ability. Just like he's given you something in your life. But here's Green on his diet. Quote, when I went on this diet, it's like a sense of control. And it's confidence because you feel like you're conquering something. You're defeating something every day. Having that control, it carries over to other areas in your life. We all love to eat. We all enjoy the things that we enjoy. If I can conquer that and not do that, why can't I conquer my emotions too? Well, maybe I can expletive conquer my emotions. Maybe I can conquer anything else. And so I think, honestly, that has really helped put me in a different state. Unquote. That's Draymond Green quoted in this Ramona Shelburne article. If anybody comes up to me, or tweets me or whatever and asks me what they should do when it comes to health. I simply respond with this. I say, do something, do anything, and try to do a little bit more than you did yesterday if you're already doing something. And I think that that can actually apply to life as well. Draymond Green was doubted at every level. He still is, at least offensively. And all he does is go out there and prove people wrong. And I'm in a really weird spot here defending Draymond Green because I've gone after him so hard for his annex and his nonsense for years. But I've really enjoyed this Draymond Green I've seen over the past few weeks. And I think that he's kind of teaching a lesson to us all, even if he didn't necessarily mean to do that. And what that is, is he recognized something in himself. His mother came and told him. Kevin Durant told him in the fall. He recognized that something internally within him was out of balance. And he did something about it, or at least he certainly admitted that it could become a problem, and he started to look to change it. And he didn't do it negatively. He channeled it positively. So right now, he's still playing with the fire that he had before. He's still playing with all that furious energy that made him an all-star, and it's probably going to make him a Hall of Fame player in the NBA when it's all said and done. But as a result of doing it the right way, he's now a 100% benefit to his team at a time that they desperately need this version of him with all the injuries that they're sustaining. Nobody out here is perfect. Not even close. And being introspective can help you to some extent 
as can accepting criticism from people we respect. I, I used that quote the other day that said, why would you take criticism from someone you would never take advice from? Well, I'm saying accepting criticism from people you respect that are, are veterans in your field or are family members or, or people that you love, that is smart. Draymond Green was known for throwing tantrums, for screaming and yelling, getting in refs' faces and kicking guys below the belt, all of that kind of stuff. And now, Draymond Green is just playing great basketball, and he's helping to lead Golden State into the vicinity of another championship. Now, are they going to win it? I I don't know. I haven't predicted to win it in six, so I guess I'm saying they will. But it's a 1-1 series right now, and there's a lot of things yet to be determined. And interestingly... In addition to his mom, he credited his fiance. He proposed, he proposed to her in January. Her name's Renee. And here's what he said about that. Quote, she's a lot like my mom. When I'm making decisions now, somewhere in my mind is like, will she approve of it? And amen to that, because I found that to be true in my own life as well. And it's an incredible blessing to have that mentality to lean on while still maintaining your individuality and your freedom. But my overarching point here is simply this. Reading through Ramona Shelburne's article and at least taking a look at this temporary evolution of Draymond's mental processes and how he looks and views himself. And he actually tells a story about how he was watching with his he was watching with his fiance and maybe his mom's in the room as well. And they were watching film of his son playing basketball and whining and crying and flopping around. And he said, holy cow, is that what I look like when I do that? And that it finally hit him, that's not who I want to be at all. And it does take, it takes an incredible amount of humility in some ways to actually look at yourself through that prism and not be able to look past what's happening that you don't like and being able to apply that to yourself. When you can apply to yourself things that you see in others, you're taking some really proper steps. And I think Draymond Green is doing just that. And so when you're looking at this evolution of what he's doing mentally. It's not in any way surprising that he's playing as effectively as he is right now. And I've got no doubt. I'll go ahead and predict one thing about tonight. He is going to be huge in game three for Golden State. That doesn't mean he's not going to get a technical foul. He hadn't had one since April the 30th. So I guess you could say he's due. But he's kind of a different guy right now. But maybe he does you know, revert back to the bad guy. Again, we're not perfect and we all need grace. So maybe it's not going to be a great night, but I'm predicting it's going to be a great night for him because he's playing just outstanding basketball on both ends of the floor. And he and Steph Curry basically both have to play out of their gourds, especially if Clay Thompson doesn't go tonight. And the sources as of late over the last hour or so are saying that nobody at Golden State really wants him to play tonight. They kind of want him to sit because they are worried about this hamstring getting worse. They can potentially be really devastating to the extent that if he were to come back, it gets worse, then he can't play anymore, period. I know David Chow said, well, the hamstring isn't going to get better in a couple of weeks. He needs basically the rest of the season off, but that it could get worse. So it's precarious. But Steph and Draymond have to play really well tonight. So we'll see about Clay. We know KD is out. Iggy is hampered. Looney's probably done for the season. And even though Boogie Cousins was great in game two, can he keep that up? Steph and Draymond at their best, if they get the contributions they need from the role players that do tend to emerge at home in the playoffs, 
that might still be enough to win tonight, even with all the dominoes that are seemingly stacked against the Warriors entering this game three, just on paper. But Draymond getting his mind right and channeling this self-control into his diet and fitness regimen and his attitude is one of the major reasons why I expect the Warriors can win tonight, even without with all those things against them, I think they can still win. And on National Running Day, even though this article came out yesterday, that's where my own mind is right now as it relates to tonight's big game. I'm going to go ahead and predict another triple-double for Draymond and one of those games where I think he's being talked about as much, if not more, than anybody else in a Golden State uniform or maybe more than anybody else on the court for either team. And... For them to, to be up 2-1 to one tomorrow and that to be the storyline that we're talking about three games into the NBA Finals, that might need to be the storyline for Golden State. Food for thought. We'll be right back. This is the Big Six. Oh. Welcome back to the Big Six here on 104.5. The Zone Little Band of Heathens for you. Hurricane, name of this tune. Check it out. I'm Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. 615-737-1045 is how you join me. We're brought to you by Renters Warehouse, dedicated to putting homeowners on the path to financial freedom through rent estate. Renting your home without having to do the hard stuff. Renters Warehouse is the rent estate company. So stick with me here. So I'm going to get to a point but I'm hopefully going to be interesting before we get there. When you're watching a TV show, all right, so you finish up a season, and then the next one starts and you're super excited. At least you are if it's any good. Now, if it's not, then who cares? But mainly the reason why you're excited about the next season is because you've become invested in the futures of whatever that group of characters is. If you don't care about the people, you're probably not going to care about the show. Because, you know, Breaking Bad, you cared whether or not Walter White and Jesse Pinkman were going to get out of the mess with Gus. You cared about what happened to Paulie and Silvio on The Sopranos or Bodie in the Baltimore streets on The Wire. You cared about whether Nick and Jess was actually going to work or not on New Girl. I mean, the list goes on and on. A series cannot work or couldn't work long term without familiarity. And without some level of cohesion. Now, there are exceptions in TV. They're called anthology series, like American Horror Story or Fargo, even though even Fargo does build upon portions of what came before, but it's usually an entirely new set of characters in a new setting. And of course, there are sitcoms that are basically there to live in syndication, at least back in the day. But usually the ones that you gravitate to, you still start to care about the characters and you know about the relationships that are happening on that show. And so there's an advantage, though, to these, you know, the American Horror Stories of the world. But the vast majority of shows are about a cast that makes sense and a cast that sticks together. And that's because and it, it explains why when a longtime stalwart leaves a series, it often signals the beginning of the end because it's nearly impossible to replace that person in the hearts of those that have been watching the show. So CSI, for example, they did okay after William Peterson left and Gus Grissom left or Gil Grissom rather left, 
but it wasn't the same show. And that's with all due respect to Lawrence Fishburne and Ted Danson and to Elizabeth Shue. They were all good, but the show wasn't the same without Gil. Cheers somehow did survive when Coach departed from the series, when they had to write him out after his actual death, after he dealt with alcoholism and heart problems and died of that heart attack in 84. But Woody Harrelson arrived, and Woody Boyd was just such a great character, and Woody fit the rest of that cast like a glove. And actually, Cheers pulled it off twice because Shelley Long left, and then Kirstie Alley did a really admirable job. Nobody's going to say that Rebecca Howe was Diane Chambers, but some might have thought that the show got better because it got a little bit less awkward. And I know the cast enjoyed it better because Shelley Long was notoriously hard to work with. But Cheers is definitely the aberration. It's definitely not the rule in television or in pop culture, period. Another one, when kids grow up on sitcoms, those shows are pretty much nearing their end because so many of them rely on the children for the humor. And that's why I think Everybody Loves Raymond worked for as long as it did near the top of the ratings till the very end of its ninth season, because as they would even voice in the opening credits in the early years, Ray Romano during the, during the credits would cup his hand to his mouth and say softly into the camera, it's not really about the kids. That was a signal they understood something. That's the smartest thing that show ever could have done is to make it about the adults. If they're already young adults by the time you meet them, like something like friends, then they can get older and you get older with them. But Saved by the Bell, the college years didn't work because they got a little too old and it just fell apart. So Travis Haney yesterday for The Athletic wrote about year two for Mike Vrabel and the Titans coaching staff. And I've been focusing mentally really strongly on Matt LaFleur leaving for Green Bay and how, oh, this is yet another new offensive coordinator for Marcus Mariota to work with. And same with the rest of the offense, even though Arthur Smith was with the team already. And so I've constantly sat around and thought about how big a deal that was and how tough it has to be for eight, just to keep my TV analogy alive, to deal with a new showrunner for his, and I'm just going to be real here, his dark drama series more often than not, year after year after year. But I read Travis Haney's article and I thought about it for a couple of minutes and it took me in a different direction and it took me in a more positive direction. So let me just read directly from his piece. This at The Athletic. The first bump after the first season was figuring out what staff changes needed to be made. Vrabel came back almost immediately in early January and said he intended to keep the on-field staff intact, only making the decision to bring in a new strength coach. Frank Perano was hired from Boston College on January the 9th to run the team's weight room. The same week the Perano was added, then-offensive coordinator Matt LaFleur opened one spot on the staff by taking the Packers' head coaching position. The Titans responded by promoting Arthur Smith to the OC chair and then hiring Todd Downing to replace Smith as the team's tight end coach. But that's the extent of the moves. Just one new on-field addition. It's something that's perhaps a rarity given that it was Vrabel's first go-round and that his staff included several first-time NFL assistants. That from Travis Haney's excellent article at The Athletic. And so we'll take it away from TV. Let me give you one more example. CMA Fest this week. And any concerts that you go to, what is the, the one thing that you dread as an audience member? And I'm not saying everybody does because I can enjoy this from time to time. 
It's not when they play stuff from the new album, because you've probably heard the new album. If you're buying concert tickets to see somebody, then you're spending a decent amount of money because you're a fan of theirs. So if they've put out a new record, you've probably checked it out. But when they say, we're going to play something from the album that's coming out in six months. we got an album coming out next year. Uh, we've never played this before. We're going to play it for you. No! No one wants to hear that. That's the bathroom break. You don't go to hear Leonard Skinner perform stuff off their 2020 untitled record. You go to hear Saturday Night Special. You go to hear Tuesday's Gone. You go to hear Sweet Home Alabama. You go to home, go to hear Freebird, of course. And that's the same difference as the band that goes there and plays the 15-minute version of the four-minute album and just starts to jam out with it and you just zone out. There are things that bands do that irritate at concerts, unless you're a jam band and you're known for that kind of thing. But again, cohesion and familiarity often breed success, contentment, and just the right attitude. So we know that Dean Pease is coming back. We know Kerry Combs is coming back. If you want to find spots, folks, where the Titans have an advantage, maybe they didn't last year, haven't had on a consistent basis for a while, even though maybe it's going to change back the other way after this season. We don't know. It's that there is more cohesion here than maybe I had thought about and maybe you had thought about. We are actually going into the 2019 season with a Titans staff where the main cast, Sands one that took more money to do his own show on another network in Matt LaFleur. All those guys are still going to be in the opening credits of the Titans series in season two. Now, if you don't like that ensemble cast, well, you're probably not watching the show or you're on message boards going after the casting director. But with a ton of uncertainty at the quarterback position, which we have all talked about on this radio station ad nauseum, and will continue to do so because it is the storyline going into this year where a decision needs to be made about that spot for the future as it relates to Marcus Mariota. And I guess according to, to Mike Tannenbaum and a few others, as it relates to Ryan Tannehill. But there's so much question at the quarterback spot. There's questions at the receiver spot. And then there's three first-round picks. Three in particular, all top ten picks as well. In Mariota, Jack Conklin, and of course, Corey Davis. And there's questions about each one of them, whether they're long for Nashville or whether they're just not going to turn out to work here for the future of what this organization wants to do. With all of that, and in a tough division where maybe Nick Foles makes the Jags better, Houston's going to be formidable, and the Indianapolis Colts are going to be Super Bowl contenders, barring another injury to Andrew Luck. With all of those things not necessarily being in the Titans' favor, I'm going glass half full today. I'm going anti-Larry David. And I'm saying that there is definitely, folks, something to be said for at least having most of the guys on the sidelines that did a better-than-expected job in their first season together, especially with the youth, including under a rookie head coach, with all those guys all being back, minus one that really wasn't all that good in the first place or certainly didn't prove that he was all that good in the first place. So that's something positive to think about as we go into this season. I don't know what the record's going to be. It would be foolish to sit here and try to figure that out yet. we got to see who's healthy, and we've got to see some of the other things that shake out over the next couple of months. We're just at OTAs. It's barely June. 
There's a long way before we get to actual football. There's a long way before we get to fake football, the preseason games that may or may not exist in the years after the next CBA. But there is room for positivity in the idea that there is cohesion on this coaching staff, assuming that you liked the coaching staff to begin with from last year. And I was not a fan of Matt LaFleur, so the fact that he's the one that left, eh, I think there's reason for positivity here. We'll be right back. Big Six. Little Amanda Shires for you. Coming back. This is the Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin. You can follow me on Twitter at jmartzone. You miss any part of this program? Well, we've got a mea culpa for you. we got a mulligan for you. Global Golf Radio coming up next, so I'll just go ahead and segue there. But the mulligan is subscribe to the podcast, The Big Six with Jason Martin. Find it throughout every podcast catcher, wherever it is that you like to get your podcasts and listen to them. It's available to you right there. We'll make sure that you get everything we've done since July when we started this show, all the interviews, all the segments. If you miss anything, that is the best way to do it. Also, the Pop Six with Jason Martin. You can check out the pop culture side of what I'm doing. And, of course, you can read everything I do at 1045thezone.com slash big six blog. Lance Armstrong. I was on the West Coast last week, and this story kind of hit after I left. And so I haven't had a chance to comment on it yet, so I'm going to comment on it now. Lance Armstrong is back in the news, kind of. And he sits down with Mike Tirico for NBC Sports Network. And wants to talk about his past. And he gets asked about his past, obviously. Because I don't know how many people care about Lance Armstrong's present. He's been stripped of his seven Tour de France victories by the International Cycling Association. He's kind of become a pariah in the country. Or he's just kind of become a who cares. Nobody's really paying attention to it. He has made some appearances. Uh, he was in HBO's mockumentary from Funny or Die in Lonely Island, the tour to pharmacy. It came out a couple of years ago. It was pretty funny. It's really over the top, and the content's something that if you cringe at language or certain things, probably don't and en- don't enjoy that one. But we know that Lance Armstrong doped. That's been proven after his lies finally fell on top of one another, and he finally came clean on Oprah in 2013. The facts were revealed. But the reason I wanted to mention this is not just to drag Lance Armstrong back through the mud, but it's because he told Tariko during the course of this interview that he, quote, wouldn't change a thing, unquote. He said, we did what we had to do to win. It wasn't legal, but I wouldn't change a thing, whether it's losing a bunch of money or going from hero to zero. He went on and he talked about how he would not change how he acted at any point during this process. And then he caveated that, and he's like, oh, because of the lessons that I've learned, and because if I hadn't, I wouldn't have gotten caught, I wouldn't have gotten investigated, I wouldn't have gotten sanctioned if I hadn't acted the way I did. Quote, I was asking for them to come after me. It was an easy target, unquote. And he kept on going, and he said he made mistakes that led to other mistakes. And then he fell on the sword, took full responsibility for all the decisions he made, said the buck stopped with him. But there's one thing that through this 30-minute special on NBC Sports Network with Mike Tarico, there's one thing that he did not do. So while he's learning all these lessons and going through the cheating and the lying and all of the stuff 
that we know Lance Armstrong was engaged in. There is another part to this. And I didn't hear a whole lot of that during this interview. And that is widespread, nasty, gross character assassination that Lance Armstrong engaged in against anybody who challenged these lies, who tried to bring the truth to light. Lance Armstrong tried to ruin their reputations. He drugged them all under the bus and he behaved in, there's no other way to put this. It was pathetic. The fashion in which he behaved. And so while he's taking responsibility for all these things in this piece, I didn't hear remorse for that. Now, cycling is about as dirty a sport as exists on the history of Earth. We know this. Everybody cheats. We get it. We've seen and we've heard these stories for decades. And it's why that mockumentary on HBO made as much sense as it did, even for as over the top as it was as a parody. The fact that Lance Armstrong turned out not to be clean as the driven snow in a sport where everybody else was cheating and somehow he won seven Tour de France's surprised precisely nobody. And really, I feel like we'd have probably just moved on from it. But his continued denials at the expense of anybody who tried to get to the bottom of it, that's fellow cyclists, it's trainers, it's people with the cycling association, it's pharmacists, it's people involved on the drug side, everybody. That's where my issue is, because for real accountability here, feel like he should feel a little bit regretful for that, don't you think? About the lives that he tried to, and in some cases did destroy? So he says he regrets that he can't apologize to the public at large that he let down. But it's the people he actually wronged that if anybody should actually get an apology. I don't really care that he lied to me. Yeah, it sucks that somebody we might have looked up to, or yeah, I wore a yellow Livestrong bracelet too, and he turned out to be a fraud. Yeah, that sucks. But we forgive that stuff. And I forgive him right now for all of this. It's gross, but like I said about Draymond Green and that story off the top tonight, nobody is perfect. But he he lied to me, and I was just a sports viewer. I guess I was in the media at the tail end of this, but I was just somebody that, that viewed it. I was an onlooker. Now, the colleagues that he attempted to decimate and disintegrate Thanos snap style, that's where I would have liked to have heard more. Actually, you know what? Check that. I don't really need to hear much of anything from a 47-year-old Lance Armstrong in 2019 at all. He's got a new podcast. I'm not going to listen to it. There's really nothing left for him to say, not right now, that interests me. Now, if there's a message that he wants to get out, then that's something maybe to keep an eye on and to listen to because he does have unique experience. And contrition, as long as contrition is there, he could do a lot of good here. But Lance Armstrong's greatest punishment should simply be public anonymity at large. We're not going to forget all this stuff. We're always going to know who Lance Armstrong is, but we can move on. I spend, folks, 100% of my life, outside of today at least, not thinking about Lance Armstrong at all. And that's kind of how it should be. That's his legacy. It was the trappings of being the best cyclist alive and being Lance Armstrong in all caps on the marquee that led to this whole mess in the first place. So let's go ahead and take the suction cups. I used to work in a movie theater and I used to do this. Let's go take the suction cups at the end of the long wooden stick and let's just letter by letter take that name down. Take the L, the A, the N, the C, the E down and just help him kind of go away again. And then Lance Armstrong can just continue on with his life like the rest of us. 
But the fact that he said he wouldn't change a thing after all the lives that he attempted to and in some cases did destroy, that leaves me with a bit of a sour taste as it relates to this redemption story and at least whether or not he actually feels sorry for what he did to others. It's, I mean, it's, he got caught doing something everybody else was doing. But in the process, anybody that actually tried to expose him for that, he attempted to bury six feet under. That continues to be a problem. We'll be right back. Big Six, 104.5 The Zone. Zone. Final segment, Big Six, 104.5 The Zone. Tears for Fears bringing us home tonight. Global Golf Radio with Barney Allery coming up next. Neutral Zone, Chris Martell coming up a little bit later on tonight as well. Live and local, extended edition on Wednesdays as always. I'm Jason Martin on Twitter at jmartzone. We're brought to you by Renters Warehouse, dedicated to making renting your home easy, fast, and worry-free. Renters Warehouse, you can't buy happiness, but you can rent it. So this is interesting because it kind of bucks a trend. And so as a result, it sort of stands out as being strategically intriguing we don't watch anything live anymore as a country it doesn't seem like we do think of how much you actually just plan to sit down and view as it happens maybe for you it was game of thrones i know for me only half the season did i see live and one of the episodes i didn't see until six days after it aired and i do pop culture for a living Sporting events, maybe not as much as it used to be because of the DVR, but mainly because unless you're a social media addict, you can still live your life externally of a network or a cable schedule, even with sports. Now, if it's your team, maybe you're going to watch live. I can tell you that for game two of the NBA finals, Nashville wasn't in the top 20 markets in the country in live viewing. So most of you were doing something else. Maybe Nashville's not a big NBA town, or maybe this matchup doesn't have your attention. Or maybe there's just been other stuff going down. But as a whole, I feel like we're becoming an a la carte society. In much the same way your school cafeteria added an a la carte line at some point when you were growing up. At least for me, it happened in middle school. It wasn't take what they hand you on the tray that's like everybody else's. It was, well, do you want a cup of French fries for 90 cents? Do you want a slice of pizza for a buck 25 do you want a sweet tea or lemonade for 35 cents? Do you want a different dessert? Or maybe you don't want any dessert. What kind of milk might you want? All sorts of stuff. And the money that you would spend would then change as a result. But all of this has kind of led to this feeling today in our minds that we can get what we want, how we want, when we want, even if we're not at Burger King. But when something does get spoiled... How is it that sometimes that can actually become an advantage after the surprise is lost and the cat's out of the bag? Well, the answer is sometimes when the expected is revealed, it actually ends up changing something in a historic way. And then we might actually make an appointment to watch it live to see it go down. Or when something unexpected is revealed ahead of time, then we might really go out of our way to see it. We know what's going to happen, but we know it's something that has some level of meaning because it's rare. And the reason why I'm talking about this is because of Jeopardy, which is my parents' favorite show. 
and this 33-show run of James Holzhauer that came to an end on Monday night when he was finally beaten. He won over $2.4 million bucks during this incredible stretch. And we saw these endless Ken Jennings, James Holzhauer articles, these Watson articles. But finally, in wire terminology, he got got. Now, if you're not somebody that watches Jeopardy regularly, but you were following this story because you had to have heard it somewhere, whether it was on the radio or whether or not it was on television. I mean, it was mentioned on many, many newscasts over the past month, not to mention entertainment shows and elsewhere. You might have, for the first time, actually watched because you knew he was going to lose after that footage leaked out before the thing aired. There were a lot of people just upset on social media because, oh, well, we just found out he lost. That just took all the fun out of it. Because here's the thing. If you don't watch it, though, you all of a sudden realize something became newsworthy. It wasn't guaranteed to happen before, but now you know it's going to happen because you knew about it in advance. You were watching a never-before-seen outcome that you knew with 100% certainty was coming. And maybe you're out there right now like, why would I do that? And maybe you're thinking to yourself, I'll bet the ratings tanked after that information leaked on Monday afternoon. Well, I would not place money on that bet because you'd be betting entirely incorrectly. Holzhauer's exit episode on Monday did a 10.1 in the overnight ratings. That was the highest of his entire time on the show by a decent margin. And it was just one-tenth lower than the 10.2 that the NBA Finals did for Game 2 on Sunday night nationally. That's unbelievable. And there's this idea now in TV of something called DVR proof for shows and for various entities. And that basically is that the ratings are going to stay the same no matter what. Sports have long been called DVR proof in some ways, but I can tell you that usually unless something shocking happens and I have to see it, once I know who wins that game, I'm not going to watch the whole thing. I've said that before on this show because it just feels totally pointless and it takes time to watch sports. And why would you do that unless you're covering it and you need to make notes on every single play? Like here, all of us here at The Zone, we're watching all the Titans games. Even if we go live, we're still going to watch the television broadcast to see what we can extrapolate from that to put into talking points or to contextualize, or just to see what maybe we miss from play to play. But you're not going to do that unless it's something that you're covering. And thanks to the internet and social media, I can actually go see the highlight of this stunning thing that I know now happened without having to sit there and watch four quarters of action. So spoilers can really ruin experiences. But the reason I wanted to talk about this is because on some rare occasions, it's actually the best possible thing that can happen that information leaks and gets spoiled because all of a sudden something's historic and you have the time to prepare to watch it. James Holzhauer's loss was bigger because it leaked. We tuned in to see it for ourselves because it was memorable. That 10.1 is insanely high. Also, there's a point that Jeopardy and most game shows and Awful Announcing and other media outlets pointed this out afterwards. Most game shows skew older in terms of audience. That means a lot of people still might not have known because they don't live and breathe on social media. And there were so many people on Twitter that were Monday, that were angry on Monday when they found out. But how many of those people didn't watch the show that night to see it, even if they were mad while they were doing so? 
I'd say the answer to that question is minimal in terms of a number. And you add to that those that don't watch the show but did tune in to see this run come to an end. I think it's really interesting to see how spoilers, in a very rare case, and in this case, the evidence is there, a 10.1, and the NBA Finals did a 10.2. In this case, it benefited James Holzhauer's run, and it benefited Jeopardy and the television networks and syndication that ran it that night. This is probably one of the best examples I've ever seen of the spoiler rule going in the opposite direction, and it actually could become a strategy for the future, at least for game shows and some of this niche programming. It's not something that's going to work if you're spoiling big events on a serial drama, but it can work in this more reality-based deal because if I didn't watch Jeopardy, I'm still watching this on Monday night because I want to see history, and I know I'm guaranteed to see history. Before we get out of here, let's make you smarter. Entering game three tonight, this stat from Tom Haberstroh. The Golden State Warriors have assisted on 88% of their buckets in the NBA Finals. 88%. The all-time record for the NBA in the Finals, 72%. We talk a lot about this ball movement without Kevin Durant. Much of it is necessary because Steph's now the only guy that can get his own shot. But that ball movement is on pace to be truly historic. 88% is insanity. We'll see if they keep that up this evening. We'll talk about it, win or lose, tomorrow. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. God bless, saying goodnight.